This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Ah, another week with nothing to talk about. Uh, Well, I guess we'll uh, talk about Syria. Um... So I got a couple principles that, that I want to share here just so so you know where I uh, how I think about things like this before we get to what I think. So the question is, the bigger question is when does America get involved, right? When does our military get involved with a conflict overseas? Now, of course, you have the, the simple principle, whenever our national security is at risk. Okay, but uh, like what, what does that really mean? So my nature is to be hawkish All right that's that's my emotional initial knee-jerk reaction to things is to turn them into a parking lot that kind of thing right now i know that that's not a healthy urge and that it is emotional and not reasoned so because of that every time this question comes up i come at it from the opposite i come at it from the non-interventionist perspective so instead of saying, we got to go and blow them up, I say, no, definitely not. But I then have to convince myself why we must be involved. Does that make sense? If I, if I, if I stick with my initial proposition of, well, like, we gotta, of course we got to bomb them, then I have to convince myself why we shouldn't. I prefer now to come at it from the don't, but let's try to make the argument as to why we should. Does that make sense? So with Syria, my first instinct is, oh, let's go get them. But now I'm saying, all right, no, hold on. Let's not do anything. But why should we? And then I start to make that case. So in this situation, what does it mean to get involved? Well, 59 Tomahawk missiles at a direct, specific target. Decisive, clear, military-related. That's what it means to be involved. And if that's what that means to be involved, coming at it even from the non-interventionist perspective of we shouldn't, that's a pretty good argument. Now, let, let me talk a little more about the hesitations. Uh, the Institute for the Study of War released a map of Syria. And 
it had a, it was color coded and it was it was who controls the different areas of Syria. So you have ISIS has certain areas. The Kurdish forces have the areas in the north. The rebel groups have different areas. There's areas under uh, Turkish control. And then there's the area that is controlled by the Syrian government and Assad. It's maybe landmass wise, it's maybe a tenth of the country is controlled by the Syrian government. But that, of course, is the area that's most populated and most economically important. This is where Russia and Iran have, mostly Russia, have controlled the show as well. This is also where Assad, the president of Syria, is killing people. So here's the problem for us. Again, talking hesitations. Because we're coming at it, I, I come at it from a non-interventionist. And here's all the reasons why we shouldn't get involved. Let's, 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 let's list these first before we get back to the reason we should. The reason we shouldn't is because Assad is backed by Russia. So if we move against him, we move against Russia. Russia has decided that Assad is in their vital interest. Why? Because uh, Syria is Russia's only warm water port. Check out a map of Russia. The only warm water port they have, meaning the only area where their navy can function year-round, is Syria. That's their only access to the Mediterranean Sea. You have the Black Sea there. But in order to do that, you got to go through the Bosporus Strait in Turkey. And Turkey's in NATO and kind of ish allied with us. So if Turkey blocks that off, then Russia has an awesome lake navy in the, in the Black Sea. So that doesn't do any good. So Syria is their only warm water port. So it, they are desperate to keep control in Syria so that they can uh, keep their navy stationed there. So it's very, very important for, for Russia. Meaning, it, it, like for us, it's mm, Syria, whatever, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> of course, there's importance there, but for us, not nearly as much as it's important for Russia. David French said that on the 100th anniversary of America getting involved in World War I, it was, it was two days ago, 100 years ago, we got involved in World War I. So it's been 100 years. Very few people alive today remember what it's like to live through a conflict between two great powers. Obviously, our World War II veterans, but that's pretty much it. The conflicts we've been in recently, it's very, you know, we're going to drop a missile in Yemen somewhere or some Al-Qaeda village that no one's ever heard of. But ooh, you got to be careful. A single battle with Russia? Are you kidding? That could have more casualties than all these recent wars combined. So David French says that doesn't mean, does not, does not mean we should operate from a posture of fear and timidity, but rather from one of sobriety and wisdom. And it also means that if we choose to escalate our military operations to directly strike where Russia has planted its flag, then the American people need to have their voice heard through the elected representatives. We should not stumble our way into conflict. We should not lash out in anger and rage, no matter how justified, without carefully considering our strategy. There's two important points in that paragraph there. I believe it is essential that we declare war through Congress. I, 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 we cannot stumble into a great conflict, a great power conflict. And honestly, Trump would be a fool to not go to Congress because once you do that, it covers you politically. I mean, of course, it has to be done constitutionally and Congress will grant him the power. So he's got to do it. Now, this attack the other day, may, maybe maybe you don't need congressional approval for that because it had to be done quickly, element of surprise. Okay, I get that. But 
as this escalates, if this escalates, which I kind of don't think it will, but if it were to escalate, you have to get congressional approval to declare war. You have to do it right. Because if you don't, then the Republicans have no... If we don't, Republicans are hypocrites. For the last eight years, President Obama drops bombs off drones and everything else without any congressional approval. And Republicans are rightly critical of that. And then we have our guy in there and he's not going to get congressional approval either. No, we have to be better than that. And in this case, there's no reason not to. There's really no reason not to. All right, French's second point. Um, he said, we should not lash out in anger and rage without carefully considering our strategy. Don't, don't spend too much time worrying about Trump, about President Trump. A lot of, you know, uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's trigger happy. He's going to start a nuclear war. He's blah, 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 blah. Eh, don't worry about him. He's not really the one running the show on things like that. Of course, he's the one who makes the final decision, but he's not really the guy. It's McMaster and Mad Dog. McMaster is Trump's national security advisor, and Mad Dog Mattis is Secretary of Defense. Where you may think that Trump is inexperienced and doesn't know what he's doing, McMaster and Mad Dog are brilliant and wise. They are profound men. They are scholar warriors. And Trump shows deference to them, which is very good. Scholar warriors. So, so, so John McCain, John McCain's a hawk. He's not a scholar warrior. McMaster and Mad Dog Mattis are students of history. They have a depth and perspective like maybe no two men in the country. They are guys who play chess, thinking 10 moves ahead of everyone else. One of my favorite Mad Dog quotes. Um, someone, someone tweeted me one the other day. Let's see if I can pull this one up quick. Uh, oh, I thought I had it here. Something like, here it is. Be virtuous and polite and have a plan to kill everyone in the room. Okay, so that's Mad, that's mad Dog. But my, my other favorite Mad Dog quote is uh, talking about how Everyone is, they got the whole new age thing is, oh, things are so different and it's a new generation of war and blah, 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 blah. And Mad Dog says, no, no, no. Alexander the Great would not be surprised by ISIS. Alexander the Great would not be befuddled by what to do with ISIS. It's, it's all been done before. He gets it. And these are men, again, they are profound thinkers, these two scholar warriors. So, where you may not have trust in President Trump, I do, and I, I'm, I say this with great caution because it's, you know, I don't know for sure and you can't, it's hard to trust him, but I do have a great amount of trust in McMaster and Mad Dog Mattis. Those two men are the guy who are, who guys who are really calling the shots here. And they are not hawks. So I'll stop there for a second. I'll come back and then we'll talk about why I do think we should have striked the other day. But are my hesitations known? Does that, does that all make sense? Like, I don't want war. I'm anti-war. But 
and we'll get to the rest next. one 888 Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. Thanks for being patient with me as I outline hesitations and, and where I'm coming from and the perspective, the, the way I look at these questions. I don't want war. I don't want it at all. That being said, what, what Trump ordered the other night, uh, which apparently was agreed upon by his entire national security team for whatever that's worth, the 59 Tomahawk missiles on a very specific airbase target. That is the airbase that Assad ordered the chemical attack launched from. So a simple, direct purposeful, meaningful, significant. Like that, that's very, it's proportional, wasn't it? I think it was even Nancy Pelosi who said it was a proportional response. I was talking to someone yesterday who grew up in Iraq, Basim. Uh, his dad spoke out against Saddam or didn't even really speak out against Saddam, but was known to not like him and was imprisoned and tortured and handicapped today because of it. Anyways, Basim loves America. It was so awesome to talk to him. He just loves his loves this country. Um, but we were talking about the damage that, and I really, I really want this to be the last time I ever, ever bring this up because this is in the past, but the damage that Obama's red line caused and the fact that they never, he never followed through on the red line promise. So Basim's point was that this attack sends a message, not just to Syria, but to all the other players in the world that might be doing the same thing with chemical weapons, as Salcedo just said, you can't do that. This line is in effect now. This line applies. Now, that was Basim's point. Marco Rubio takes it another step further, and it's, it's, it's both these things. But Rubio says, quote, I don't believe this is a message. I believe this is actually a tactical action that furthers an objective. It's not a message. It's an actual degrading of the capability of the Syrian regime to carry out further chemical attacks against innocent civilians. This will degrade their capability to launch those attacks from the air. And I think it's an important step and hopefully part of a comprehensive strategy moving forward to bring in this blah, 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 blah. So it's not a, it's not a message. It doesn't, it doesn't send a message to Syria, right? It's, it's way more than a message. Maybe it sends a message to the rest of the world, but not to Syria. So we've, we've sent messages before, right? Um, during the or right after the first World Trade Center attack, Bill Clinton, President Clinton, launched a missile at you know a couple tents here and there, and one was at a place where they thought Al Qaeda was was making nerve gas agents or whatever or anthrax or whatever, and they bombed it, and it turned out to be a pharmaceutical factory. So it's like uh, so, and and it turns out that I, I, my understanding is that it was only a pharmaceutical factory. This was an airfield. 
right? Obviously, no civilians around. Pretty clear cut. It was the airfield, a dozen hangars, and a fuel depot, right? This is all military infrastructure. I think, I almost really think this is as clear cut as you can get. Now, Rand Paul's against it. I love Rand Paul. And I get that I'm sensitive to that. But I think when you use chemical weapons, there needs to be a response from the first world. There has to be. There has to be a response from the civilized world to put a stop to that. Now, it's what's morally interesting about this, and we can lay, you know, leave this up for moral philosophers to debate. There's other things that Assad has done that have killed even more people conventionally, right? That's why it's, oh, I guess it's, this is like really it's hard to talk about, right? So he could kill a thousand people with your run-of-the-mill machine gun, and maybe that's not a reason for America to get involved. But if he kills a fraction of the number of people with chemical weapons, like, then we do? Yes. Like, I know that's, that may sound weird, because you're like, well, hold on, he just killed a thousand people with a conventional weapon. And, and yeah, that's, like, I don't, that's a harder case that America should get involved, and one that I, I don't know if I, if I would get on board with. But with the chemical weapons, that's, that's a line. And I think it's wise to put a stop to that. And when the opportunity like this was, uh, you know, this airfield and everything is, like I just mentioned, is clear cut and specific and precise as that, I mean, I think you just got to take it. And it doesn't sound like a trigger happy response. Took a couple days. And again, I know Madison uh, McMaster were behind that. I talked to someone the other day about this and, and he's like, Slater, there's no way Mad Dog and, and McMaster, they're junior officers and they take orders. They don't give opinions. No way. We said from the jump that Trump is the delegator in chief and he's going to be like that with all things because that's how he runs his business. You can't run that many businesses unless you can delegate. It's impossible. Like it's hard for me to do a radio show without delegating. Like, and, and that's like peanuts compared to a billion dollar company, right? You have to delegate. And you also have to know the limits of your own understanding. So I was talking to this guy and, and he was going against what I said. And I said, are you telling me that President Trump got in a room with McMaster and Mad Dog Mattis? Uh, who knows? These guys got probably got like 60 years military experience. between, And Trump went, I'm going to tell you guys what to do. No way. No way. Trump had him in a room and said, all right, guys, what do you think? Do we attack? Do we not attack? Okay, had a conversation. Okay, here, here's what we think, Mr. President. Okay, it's a choice. Okay, well, I think we should attack. Okay, guys, what do we do? How do we do it? Give me some options. They come back with some options. Here's, I don't know, three options. Okay, let's boom. Let's do that one. Like, that's how delegators make decisions. I'm sure that's how this went uh, down as well. But again, all funneled through the, the wisdom of McMaster and Mad Dog. And I really think that should be very comforting. Let me end here with a quote from Secretary of State Tillerson, Rex Tillerson. Um, he said, if there are weapons of this nature available in Syria, the ability to secure those weapons and not have them fall into the hands of those who would bring those weapons into the shores of the United States, uh, it's important that some action be taken on behalf of the international community to make clear that the use of chemical weapons continues to be a violation of international norms. So if this stays within that box, then I am in support of this, what, what Trump did the other day. Once it leaves those confines, 
we need Congress and we deserve a bigger debate and conversation about it. But right here where it lies, I think it's okay. 1-800-760-KFMB. 1-800-SEVD. Other show. 1-888-900-3393. Check out a, a map of Russia when you get a second. Um, it's pretty interesting, the fact that they only have one warm water port. As I mentioned, they got the port in the Black Sea, but you got to go through Turkey if you want to get into the Mediterranean and then out. So look at a map of, uh, of Russia. They have no warm water port, which is why their port in Syria is so important. They have um, air bases and uh, their navy in Latakia and a couple other cities uh, in, in Syria. So this is a vital, vital importance for Russia. Now, I don't know. I'm really not an expert enough in this to do this, but I would... I think there could be a conversation with Russia that says, all right, guys, you want, you're allying with Assad in Syria because you want Latakia and you want your ports in the Mediterranean. Okay. Like we'll, we'll let, we don't want you there, but we'll let you have that. If you just cut it out everywhere else, I think there's some negotiating there that can take place. If that's what Russia really wants. And, and it is because that's only one water port, which is kind of crazy to think about. 1-888-900-3393. All right, there was a, a silly controversy last week, uh, but I'm going to take the bait. We'll talk about it next. Mike Slater's show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. All right, I'm going to take the bait of uh, one of the silly controversies from last week. There were two. I may take the bait of both of them. I don't know if we'll talk about the Pepsi commercial, but th- this one, this one, we'll uh, we'll chat about here. So this is the Washington Post wrote an article about Mike Pence, and they quoted a 2002 interview that he did, where Mike Pence, vice president, said he quote never eats alone with a woman other than his wife. And he doesn't go to events where they serve alcohol unless his wife is there as well. So you have that. Everyone's freaking out. As Matt Walsh put it, some serious breaking news yesterday. It turns out that Vice President Pence and his wife are in a healthy, normal marriage and they love each other very much. That should have been the end of the story. It's sort of, I was talking about this with a friend and uh, he goes, I told him that. And he goes, okay, and? Like what's, I was like, oh, no, that's it. That's the problem. What's the problem? Because it's so funny. He goes, you know, if it was the opposite, people would be freaking out. Like if Mike Pence always was gallivanting about town, eating dinner with a women, with other women, it'd be, it'd be a big problem. And here he is saying he would never do that. And it's, oh my gosh, patriarchy and you're a uh, sexist. What in the world? So we can talk about this in one of two ways. We could take the, the Christian biblical approach to this, or we could just talk common sense. They happen to be the same thing, but uh, I guess it just matters how I make the argument. So I can just tell you what we do in my family. Um, the boundaries are, and, and these aren't restrictive. These aren't rules that we impose on each other. These are just things we've discussed and decided together because there's zero need to go to lunch or dinner 
with someone of the opposite sex alone. I, I've like, I don't even, I don't even get that. Like people freaking out about this citing, you know, like career advancement and how this is Mike Pence's bigotry and sexism and how, uh, you know, how can women advance up the, the ranks if men and women can't go to dinner together? And, and uh, Molly Hemingway from The Federalist responded, oh, I didn't realize your career advancement required so many boozy private dinners with the opposite sex boss. Mine required literally zero. I don't, I don't, I, I would have to go out of my way for that to ever happen. I don't, and I also love the self-righteousness of people talking about this topic as if cheating never happens. <laughs> that's the other thing too like, oh men and women oh yeah no they never cheat on their uh, spouses that never happens oh it's crazy Mike, oh, Mike Pence thinks that that happens oh it never happens what happens all the time and the people who say oh yeah my spouse would never cheat on me I'm certain that's nearly what everyone who's ever been cheated on has said at one point so anyway my wife and I have boundaries in, in our marriage I've never had a situation where I would go to lunch or dinner with another woman certainly not with another woman my age um i don't even know why i'd want to <laughs> why, why would i want to form a friendship with another woman alone like I, I i know other women through people right and through staff my wife but I, why would i ever want to go get like i go shoe shopping with my wife enough i don't need another woman to go shoe shopping with. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't need more women. I got, it's fine. I got, I got stuff. It's one. It's all I need. So here's what it is. It's not about trust. I think this is where people get fired up. It's not trust. It's not about me trusting my wife or my wife trusting me. It's about respect. Matt Walsh, again, he put it nicely. He said, if I were to do something, if I were to do something and my wife accuses me of, of cheating, whether it be emotional or physical, and my response is, oh, I didn't do anything. Why don't you trust me? I think the appropriate response from my wife would be, no, no. Why don't you respect me? I respect my wife too much to ever put myself in a situation that would ever cause her to wonder or ever cause a rumor to be started about me and our marriage. Remember Bill Clinton, just like a year, a couple of years ago, he was asked why he cheated on his wife with Monica Lewinsky. Do you remember his response? Why did you cheat? He said, because I could. He said that out loud. That wasn't a reporter overhearing or something. He said it out loud on, on TV, like on a CBS interview or something. He said, because I could. Wow. So there's a big difference between can I do something? Yes, you can. And should I? No, you shouldn't. So Bill Clinton could cheat on his wife, but should he have? We can all cheat on our spouses, but should we? I could eat dinner with another woman, but why on earth would I? Why would I even want to? Even on a professional level, there's nothing that would ever need to be discussed that couldn't be discussed with another person also at the dinner or in an office setting. So anyway, it's not, I don't think it's a trust issue. It's not about insecurities. It's about respect. And then me for my wife, if my wife said, Oh, hey, honey, uh, I'm going to go out to dinner tonight with Jim. <laughs> like, what? What are you talking about? So, I don't know. I'll admit this one's a little tough for me because it's so obvious. I'm almost having a little trouble finding the controversy. But again, it's also kind of odd that the left criticizes Trump for being too abusive 
towards women and then accuses Mike Pence of being too, what, I don't know, puritanical against women, right? Like, they're, they're total opposites, but the left, of course, has trouble uh, with both. So, reason number one, I should have been more organized with this, I apologize. Reason number one that I'm, I'm, I and my wife have the same boundaries as Mike Pence, it's about respecting, respecting your wife, respecting your spouse. Number two, it's to protect yourself. If you're an alcoholic, you don't go to a bar. If you overeat, you don't buy ice cream and keep it in the freezer because you're going to eat it. Why tempt yourself? If you look at your phone too much, don't put it on the table at dinner because you're going to look at it. Like Why even open yourself up to further temptation? So Vox, a progressive website, they say, uh, oh, yeah, Mike Pence is a terrible person because his policies or this policy, this boundary, uh, continues the stereotype that all women are temptresses. No, but some are. What dream world are you living in where you don't think some women are? And then they also complain because they say it perpetuates the rape culture that says men are unable to control themselves. Some men do have a harder time. Which is why... These men set stronger boundaries. So this is the the weird paradox of it all. Mike Pence sets up these boundaries. Vox says, oh, you have no control over yourself. No. I have control over myself. Look, I put boundaries down. That proves I have control. If someone has boundaries, you shouldn't criticize these men for not having control over their urges, the fact that they set up healthy boundaries proves that they are very in control. It's someone who doesn't have boundaries that says they probably can't control their urges. So they have it, they have it backwards. The fact that, listen, if someone's an alcoholic and they're going through AA and they hang out at bars, the, like, I didn't know family experience are probably going to drink again, right? There to be some situation where, you know, this, Oh, come on. That thing. They fought boom one. And it's right. That's someone who alcoholic who goes to a bar and I'm sure there's alcoholics listening who can amen this. And, but there's going to be one person who's like, Oh, I'm an alcoholic. I go to the bar all the time. Okay. Good for you. But most alcoholics, if you have it under control, you don't even go. And I say that to you, good for you. Good for you for setting up healthy boundaries to protect yourself. Same thing with Mike Benz. It's so odd to criticize him otherwise. And then the third thing is, uh, so it's protect, it's respecting your wife or husband. Uh, it is uh, protecting yourself and it's protecting your reputation just to make sure that no one can ever accuse you of assault or harassment. And the more prominent you are, and I don't necessarily mean famous, but just if you're in a leadership position at work or wherever, you never want to put yourself in a situation where that could be used to manipulate you or blackmail you. Right? We can take a break here. Maybe we can come back and talk about Bill O'Reilly, right? And what's he, what he's going through this last week. It's a perfect example of that. Like, I don't know. Like, so I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, a couple weeks ago, and... He's got a girlfriend 
And he was helping an old friend move from her old apartment to her new apartment. And he and her, this girl, drove in the car together from the old one to the new one. And the girlfriend got upset. And my friend couldn't fathom why. And he was really quick to blame the girlfriend for being insecure and all the rest. And I told him, I said, listen, man, above reproach. Above reproach. Why toe the line? Why leave it up to doubt? Why even have to get in a situation where it's like, oh, no, I didn't. Like, why, why even do that? Why, why get even a mile away from it? So the question is, if someone says about you, let's say you get accused of, uh, of a sexual harassment. Or even worse, let's say someone accuses you of cheating on your wife. Do you want people to go, no, no way, impossible. No chance, no way, no how. How did you say he cheated? No, he went to, he went to a hotel with her? Nope. Mm-mm. Ne- it would never, ever, ever happen. You must be thinking of someone else. You must have saw someone else in that hotel lobby. Like There was n- no way was it, was it Charlie. Do you want that reaction? Or do you want people to be like, yeah, mm, that sounds about right. Yeah. Mike Pence wants to be that first guy above reproach. It's a good thing. I think it just shows the backwardsness of our culture that he would be criticized for, uh, for doing that. one 933 Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I just mentioned it, but uh, I know you've heard about uh, five. Is it five women? New York Times did a story about five women who have accused Bill O'Reilly of, of sexual harassment and, and stuff, and that either he or Fox News have paid out $13 million in settlements to if they agree to stay silent and not pursue uh, any more litigation. So he says uh, his response, obviously I didn't do it, just like other prominent and controversial people, I'm vulnerable to lawsuits from individuals who want me to pay them to avoid negative publicity. In my more than 20 years at Fox News, no one has ever filed a complaint with me with the Human Resources Department, even on the anonymous hotline. The worst part of my job is being a target for those who would harm me and my employer. So, I have no idea. I I, I have no idea if that happened or not. I've never met Bill O'Reilly. I've never met anyone who worked with him. But that's a perfect example of above reproach. I bet you people who have worked with Bill O'Reilly for many years, if you take one of them and tell them about these accusations, they will either say, nope, no way, not in a million years. Or they'll say, well, yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. Do you remember? Hey, Sally, do you remember when he said that to you? Do you remember this? That was weird. Wasn't it the way he acted with her or whatever? Right? Like, yeah, he did go out to dinner with her that one time, right? I mean, whatever. Like, it just it builds up evidence in a case. And that's a perfect example. That's that's the protecting yourself reason for setting that boundary. So why why do that? Why? Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that the 
not in a million years guy couldn't also do a bad thing, right? But for people in more prominent and public positions, it's all the more reason to be above reproach. And the story starts, you know, for the Billy Graham story, this is kind of the more recent iteration of it. But Billy Graham uh, went to a hotel room after speaking one night and there was a naked woman on his bed in in his hotel. So he had a choice. (laughs) Keep walking forward or turn around. And if he engaged with that, then that would have ruined his marriage and obviously his entire mission. He would have been a huge hypocrite. So he laughed, obviously. But then he prevented situations like that from ever happening again. His mentee uh, said of him, or he, he said to his mentee, I build moats around myself to keep sexual temptation at bay. I will not ride in a car with a woman who is not my wife. So is that protecting him? It's protecting his reputation. It's respecting his wife. It's all those things. It's just smart. Especially when we're coming, coming off of, you know, I guess a couple of presidencies ago, right? With Bill Clinton, you're like, don't you, don't you be happy? Shouldn't everyone be like, oh, good, good for you, Mike. <laughs> but of course you got a Vox coming out with all these articles about how oh, it's illegal and it's a uh, patriarchy and repression and back to, uh, what's it? Mad Men days and all this. Give me a break. All right, coming up next, um, I found a situation the other day where I would murder someone, which is, it's, I, I didn't, I didn't know that was there, but I, I found it. I found the, uh, I found something, which is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, may, maybe murder, maybe murder's not the the best course of action. Um, but it'd be real hard not to. I'll tell you what happened to this woman and her daughter coming up next. And, and it's unbelievable. It, this one truly is like, so for instance, California, just the legislature up in Sacramento and California voted to raise the gas tax. Okay. Gas tax and vehicle registration fee again. A whole long story. Don't get me into it. And you're hesitant to be like, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so I'm shocked that they would do that. Well, like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm not really shocked that they would do that. Of course they would do that. Same thing here. Like, I kind of actually am, though, surprised that this is the law. As crazy as things are, the fact that this is the law is still surprising. We'll tell you next. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You are listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. So, coming up, I want to uh, play an interview that Donald Trump did back in 1990, and I'm a little annoyed that I didn't see this, you know, a couple months ago or a year ago or ever. Until just the other day, but I still think it's worth playing. So we'll do that uh, probably in an hour. But I want to start here. Uh, and I'll just tell you, this is going to be a pretty short segment because I I have nothing to say. And I know that's not good for a radio host who has three hours to fill here. Um, I, I, all I can say is I I would murder someone. If this, if this happened, I don't know what I would do. I would have to... Ooh, Ooh, I just I get angry even even thinking of the possibility. This is out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, fourteen thirty-seven. 
the law, but say they... Tulsa mother who says she was blindsided when her daughter came home from a school trip with a birth control implant in her arm. The school says it was part of a sexual education session. Fox 23 investigative reporter Ashley Lincoln found out why schools and clinics do not have to notify parents. Ashley. Shay, it's a bit jarring for parents to hear this information, but it's actually legal. I found that this is a program that picks up students from their school during school hours to take them to a clinic of their choice to then get information. And in some cases, they receive contraceptive. But I found that this is all legal, and neither the school nor the clinic has to notify parents about this, but parents feel a different way. Parent Miracle Foster. <laughs> I just did not expect this. And like I said, that was not a choice. Told me she thought she was sending her daughter on a sexual education field trip just to get information. My child went on a field trip, you know, and she came back with this in her arm. But Foster says she was outraged when she learned a clinic gave her daughter more than info by inserting a hormonal birth control implant into her daughter's arm. Well, now this is in her arm for three years. I talked to the principal at Langston Hughes Academy where Foster's daughter attends. He told me he doesn't classify this outing as a field trip, but calls it an annual sex education session. Had I known that this field trip was for her to get that done, I would not have allowed her to go. He says the school works with Youth Services of Tulsa to conduct these classes. They allow students to leave campus to get more information with the rep from Youth Services. I found you. How was, how was any of that allowed? So it turns out, this report says, Title 10 federal guidelines allow youths as young as 12 to get birth control without parental consent. Now, I just want to be clear. Birth control is not just a condom. It can, in fact, be implanting this thing in your arm that releases estrogen uh, for three years. That also counts under the category of birth control. And that's what the 16-year-old got and someone as young as 12, whatever, could get all that stuff, whatever, the whole gamut of birth control without any parental consent. So the principal responded with this. Th this, I think, is what would make me want to punch him in the nose, this response. The parent gave her child permission to leave the school. Yeah, but not for that, right? You can't just be like, oh, well, listen, I mean, they, the mom said we could leave the school, so therefore anything we do off school grounds is game on. Under Title 10, once young people are at the clinic, they can make decisions on their own without parental consent. That's the next part. So it's like, listen, you gave us permission to leave the school, so, and, oh, and then we just dropped them off at this Planned Parenthood. And once they're in the Planned Parenthood, I, pff, nothing we can do. Our, pff, our hands are clean. I mean, I, pff, I, I don't know what they can make decisions on their own. It's, as you can understand, this situation involves a minor. And we do not release information about students. How crazy is that? So the 16-year-old is a minor, so the school can't talk about her, but is, a, is old enough to be dropped off at a Planned Parenthood, not technically a Planned Parenthood, but a Reproductive Health Services Center, basically a Planned Parenthood, dropped off at a Planned Parenthood uh, to get some uh, hormones uh, injected into her. Like, that's cool. That's fine. No, no. They're, right, so they're old enough for that. 
but still a minor. And you know, and the parents listening right now, it's just, you got it. You not allowed to hand out an aspirin to a kid or an Advil. But you go ahead and get uh, get this birth control shot in you for uh, three years. Nevertheless, the student was well within their rights of Title X, which is a federal guideline that provides reduced cost family planning services to person of all reproductive age. Unbelievable. So the school takes the kid, drives them to a Planned Parenthood, and then says, well, I mean, it's out of our hands now. Wow. And this mom had no idea that that's, and who would? You would think if you gave the school permission to take your kid off school property that the school is going to look after them, right? Look look over them, make sure it's like they're responsible now. But the school's being like saying like, oh no, I mean, once we drop them off there, nothing we can do. Unbelievable. Now, I, I don't know the exact situation of this family, right? The relationship between the mom and daughter. I would hope my daughter, who doesn't exist, would feel comfortable enough to talk to us, her parents, or someone within the council of moms. Did you catch Bruce Filer on Glenn's show the other day? Bruce Filer, uh, his previous book, two ago? I don't know, one of his old books. It's called Council of Dads. So he thought he was dying, so he reached out to his best male friends to who each had a different characteristic that he wanted uh, his kids to have, and he put them on the Council of Dads. And one of the things with the Council of Dads, because he didn't die, uh, but the Council of Dads is still there so that if one of his kids doesn't feel comfortable enough going to him, they can go, the, the son can safely go to anyone in the Council of Dads. Now, the difference between the Council of Dads and the school is that the Council of Dads is someone that we, uh, like I, I have a Council of Dads, that I trust. It's someone I trust. It's someone I bequeath power to. It's someone who who fills me in on what's happening, right? On what advice they're giving, on what my son is saying, right? Like we can all do this as a team together, which is very different from the school, which is like, ah, I don't know. Dropped them off. Nothing we can do. Very, very different. No one on my council of dad would, dads for my son would go around me on anything. Not like the school did with this mom. Anyway. You, I don't. This is why I, I recommend everyone have a council of dads and a council of moms, right? So if this daughter was doing something, didn't want to go to the mom, could go to the council of moms, talk about it with one of them, blah, 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 have a real conversation, keep it within uh, trusted sources. Listen, this is what happens when we. This happens when a lot of things happen, but this is what when we do a lot of things. But this is what happens when we outsource sex education to the schools. Of course, this would happen. Um, more of this will happen with more responsibility we give to the government. We already give the government responsibility to educate our kids, to feed our kids. Breakfast, lunch, some schools now dinner. Schools uh, give kids backpacks on Fridays so that they can eat over the weekend. Schools set up uh, free breakfasts and lunches during summer, just show up. Uh, some so during summertime, some kids can't get to the school. So they have uh, different schools have buses that drive around and drop off food at people's houses. Okay. So we have, we have almost fully outsourced feeding our kids to the government, which just blows my mind. 
government provides health care to our kids. 50% of the kids in California are on Medi-Cal. It's Medicare, Medicare for, for kids. So half of kids in California have their government or their health care provided by the government. We're getting to the point where most people would think it's strange that parents should have say over what happens to their 12-year-old daughter. Right? The assumption is becoming that the government in the school is the de facto parent. And the parents are just there to, you know, like fill in the cracks of what the government doesn't do on its own. Wow. So just, we'll take a break here, but uh, I just, good opportunity here to reiterate where we're going. I forget when I put what my prediction was time-wise when I made this last. Maybe, I probably said 10 years from now, a couple years ago. So let's go seven or eight years from now. There will be public boarding schools. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with a boarding school, but with a public boarding school, there is. And the whole premise of a public boarding school This is where kids stay overnight. The whole premise is going to be, well, it's not safe to send kids home. Too many kids have bad family situations, drug use, violence. uh, Neighborhoods are too violent. So it's better. It's safer just to keep the kids in the school. Now, that's not actually a good thing, but it's going to be pushed because the unions want more union members to staff the school overnight. So that's where we're headed. I'm going to give it seven or eight years from now. We're going to have public boarding schools. And then it's just game on, right? I mean, what is a parent then? What the parents have like visiting hours or something like at the school, like, but that's obviously where we're headed. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusader. Thanks for being here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let's chat about this for a second. This is kind of interesting. So Thomas Groom is a uh, theology professor at Boston College. He came to America from Ireland 45 years ago. His cousin came here 15 years before that. And when Thomas got here, he uh, asked about the political system here. And his cousin said, oh, you're Catholic we're Catholic. Catholics vote Democrat. So he's been voting Democrat ever since. It's that simple. But now Thomas is saying, well, hold on. Why are Catholics generally supporting people who support abortion? Like supporting politicians who support abortion? Uh, well, they're not anymore. Uh, as much uh, Clinton lost the Catholic vote by seven points, lost the white Catholic vote by 23 points. And there's a lot of Catholics in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So this Catholic Thomas is, he's talking about why, why so many Catholics voted for Trump. He says for many traditional Catholic voters, Mrs. Clinton's unqualified support for abortion rights and Mr. Trump's opposition and promise to nominate anti-abortion Supreme court justices were tipping points. When asked about abortion in the third presidential debate, Mrs. Clinton focused on the importance of a woman's right to choose, saying, I strongly support Roe v. Wade. But in making it appear as if she was viewing a wrenching moral decision only through a legal lens, she was losing many Catholic and evangelical voters. 
Mr. Trump, in contrast, offered a graphic description of, quote, ripping the baby out of the womb in the ninth month on the final day. Okay, so he goes on and he concludes that Democrats don't need to be against abortion. They just need to talk about it like it's a difficult thing and not just a legal issue, right? So that, so his suggestion is that Democrats talk about abortion as if it's a moral issue, as if it's a, a difficult decision, as opposed to, up oh, Roe v. Wade, law of the land, done. Which is pretty much how Hillary Clinton just handled it. So, for instance, Barack Obama, 2008, he said, those who diminish the moral element of the decision are not expressing the full reality of it, right? So, so here's Obama, you know, struggling like, mm, this a, oh, it's tough, right? Like, oh, you got to understand the, the, the whole picture. Oh, yeah. Now, in the end, he concludes that abortion should be legal and has the exact same position. Do you remember the, uh, we played a video. I think we played it here. It's on YouTube. You can find it. A guy calls... A, plan, a bunch of Planned Parenthoods, right? He calls a Planned Parenthood and says, hi, I'd like to make a donation. And the lady's like, oh, that's wonderful. Great, thank you so much. And he goes, yeah, can I make a donation specifically uh, f- to pay for abortions? And the lady's like, yeah, no problem. We can definitely do that. And he goes, okay, can I make it, actually, can I specifically earmark it for uh, the abortion uh, for a black baby? And and the person who picks up the phone is like, yeah, we no no problem, yeah, we can definitely definitely do that. What's your credit card number? And and he goes, oh, well, real quick before I give you that, like, I'm just really grateful that you can uh, you can earmark it towards aborting a black baby because there's way too many black people in America. And Liddy goes, uh, uh, he's like, yeah, I actually I just had a son. And it's going to be harder for him to get into college with so many black people in affirmative action. So if we can eliminate some black people, uh, that'd be great. So I'd like to make a thousand dollar donation to Planned Parenthood to abort a black baby. And the per- per- person piece of the phone is like, um, okay, Visa or American Express, and goes with it. it's like, whoa, 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 what's the difference? What changed? What changed from? Oh yeah, we'd love to take your donation. Oh yeah, sure, we can uh, abort a black baby, no problem. To whoa, whoa! Like there's there's nothing. In the end, nothing changed. The black baby's still gonna be aborted. So what's what's the difference? Why is it why is it any different for that woman who picked up the phone? So Barack Obama, all the, the all people who support us have the same. They have the same position in the end as the guy who wants to pay for an abortion of a black person because there's too many black people. It's the same, same position in the end. Kill him. So this theology professor is saying, well, Democrats, I mean, at least make it seem like you're struggling to come to your conclusion. Right? At least Obama was like, oh, you know, oh, it's tough, it's tricky. Mm. Like, at least he pretended like it was a morally difficult, oh, I'm struggling through the... But Hillary put it as just legal. Out oh, Roe v. Wade, done. End of story. The law. Law of land. Law of the land. Which, by the way, it's terrible constitutional law, and we'll save that for another day. But um, I, th- I think it 
it says a lot about us if this Catholic professor, theology professor, isn't coming to the conclusion that the Democrats need to change their opinion on this. He's saying, oh, no, no, you still come to the same conclusion. Just act like it's difficult. Just pretend like it's a hard, mm, you know, like, oh, I don't know. Pretend like you're struggling with it. How odd. Wouldn't you think this professor, Catholic, would be calling on Democrats and everyone to come to the right decision? How weird. He's not coming to the, he's not saying come to the right decision. He's saying, oh no, stay with the wrong decision, but just pretend that it's difficult. Like that is very, very strange. By the way, even this like, like middle of the road, blech, uh, like moderate, nothing article from, uh, from this professor gets, got ripped online by progressives who think that abortion is a sacred right and how dare you. Even though the theology guy's like, oh no, it should still be allowed. Right? He's just saying, if you want to win elections, at least pretend like it's a difficult thing, right? So, he's, so in the end, he still, has, he still thinks it should be legal, but progressives still ripped him. Uh, nonetheless. So Michael Ware was Barack Obama's faith outreach coordinator. He wrote a book a couple months ago. I forget what it's called. And he's been critical of the Obama administration and, and the people around the president the former president who he said were illiterate when it comes to the Bible and who have open animosity towards Christians. And he said, reaching out to evangelicals doesn't mean you have to become pro-life. It just means you have to be not so in love with how pro-choice you are. Right? So instead of rubbing in your face, pro-choice, 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 just be like, Oh, you know, like, yeah, I get it. I see what you put, you know, I'm, I'm still in the end. I'm pro-choice. Like, well, you know what? That's still not good enough because you're still pro-choice. Interesting. Uh, 1-888-933-93. Right, I want to come back with a story I haven't heard anyone talk about because there's a ton going on this week. But Saturdays, I think we can touch on some things that, uh, you know, we get, some things, we get, things that got missed. Um, a group of uh, Americans calling for something that's the opposite of what you would think they would want. Very interesting. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. I think it's a theme actually of this hour. It's, it's that everything's backwards. All right, so we got the school bringing a kid to a Planned Parenthood to get uh, a birth control put into her arm for the next three years without parental consent. And that's federal law, by the way. Federal law says that. So that's not just a weird Oklahoma thing. Um, that's everywhere in the country, as young as 12, 12 year olds uh, without any parental consent. 12. So that's backwards, right? Because we got the government above the parent. It's backwards. Uh, we have this Catholic theology professor telling uh, uh, Democrats, now you can still be pro-choice, pro-abortion, but at least kind of pretend that it's hard for you. What? 
I got another one. The National LGBTQ Task Force. So I'm going to uh, read from the press release so you don't think I'm making this up. Uh, The background is that the Trump administration released to Congress a uh, report of the list of categories that they are planning to uh, ask in the 2020 census. All right, so we got to go through this whole thing again. So we got the 2020 census, and uh, this is like the, the, the draft of what categories of people they're going to put on the census, right? So this LGBT group, uh, LGBTQ group, whatever, is obsessed because gender identity and sexual orientation are not included in the census. Quote, today, the Trump administration has taken yet another step to deny LGBTQ people freedom, justice, and equity by choosing to exclude us from the 2020 census and American Community Survey. You're still being counted as a person. LGBTQ people are not counted on the census. Oh, again, you are as a human. Like one, like there's there's one person. That's the point of the census is to count, right? There's one, you're a per- like you're still counted. It's not like you're not, like because you're gay, you're not even counted as a human. Like you're still counted as a human, just not categorized based on your sexual orientation and whatever. No data is collected on uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, they say. Okay, so how strange. So w- one of the leaders of the group says the decision to not listen, try to like the reason I stopped at the word freedom is because like, what a weird perverted definition of the word freedom. The government's not counting me based on who I like to sleep with. What? So one of the leaders says the decision to not compile a government database of gay people is another step to deny LGBTQ people freedom, justice, and equity. Wow. That's so weird. So their argument is information from these, I'm reading, information from these services help the government to enforce federal laws like the Violence Against Women Act and the Fair Housing Act and determine how to allocate resources like housing supports and food stamps. If the government doesn't know how many LGBTQ people live in a community, how can it do its job to ensure that we are getting fair and adequate access to the rights, protections, and services we need? Hmm. So, what the heck? If I had a few wishes, one of the principles that I, I would wish everyone would understand, it's a simple one. A government strong enough to give you everything you want is strong enough to take away everything you have. You would think that a group of people that was you know, recently discriminated against would desperately never want the government to ever have a database of them, right? A based on who's like 20 years ago. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine 20 years ago if the federal government was like, oh, we want to make sure uh, we're going to count everyone who's gay and uh, we're going to tally everyone up based on their uh, who you want to sleep with. Like the gay people be like, whoa, no way. No, no, no. Like I'm not telling you. Like what? But now it's like, how dare you not ask me? Wow. Isn't that interesting how it switched like that? Now, also worth noting, if this is if this were put on the census, straight people would have to answer it under penalty of law. 
So this means that you would have to disclose your sexual identity to the United States government. Why would, why would anyone want that? Now, keep in mind, when the census first started, it was there to count people. One, two, three, four, five. I mean, just literally just count. That's it. Okay, it's four people in this house. All right, on to the next house. One, two, three, three, seven total. Okay, just move it. Like that, that's, what it, that's what the census was, counting people. But then the number of questions grew and grew. Remember last week we talked about uh, race and how in 1929, if you were a Mexican, a Mexican-American, you were considered white. But then in the 1930 census, Mexican was put there as a distinct race. And the League of United Latin American Citizens, some Mexican-American organization, they protested to get Mexican off of the census. Their argument was that they are white. They're white and American. So don't classify us as anything different than that. So the next census, it was removed, and it wasn't put on again until 1970. Why? Because back in 1930, the idea was that you had to be white in order to get all the rights of an American. So Mexican-Americans wanted to be considered white so that they could get all the rights of white people. Also, when we won the area that as I live in now from Mexico, we promised the Mexican re- residents would be treated as full citizens. So Mexicans wanted to be known as white. Okay, so you would think that would be the end of it. But then in the 1970s, 80s, they wanted to be known as non-white, as something different, Hispanic, whatever. Why? Well, now it's more profitable at this point to be a minority. I mean, that's, that's, why, that's why they're doing it. Why else would you otherwise? There used to be a premium on being in the majority, right? That's why the Mexican-Americans would be like, oh, no, we're definitely white. We're white. We're white. I don't know. You look, you look Mexican. Nope, nope, nope. I'm white. Are you sure you're not Hispanic? No, 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 no. White guy. But now it's, uh, okay, you uh, go ahead and you can put white on your census form. <laughs> no, I'm Hispanic. How the change? Now there's more of a premium being put on minority. Again, why did Elizabeth Warren claim she was Native American? What do we, right? Not too long ago, you would never put Native American on a form. Now it's off. Def- Look at me, Native American. I get, I get, I'm going to get admitted, right? Right. Harvard's like, oh, look at this. Our only tenured Native American uh, on our, on our staff here. Isn't that wonderful? Right. Cause now there's a more of a priority and more of a premium uh, on being the minority. So it's the same with being gay here, right? Back when the government might discriminate against you because you were gay, no one wanted to be counted as a gay, but now you might get special privileges because you're gay. So now you're like, you can't, I can't wait to be counted. Totally backwards. And I, listen, I'm not making this up. And this is what the person said. The person's like, listen, there's all these government programs. And uh, how can they know? How can they enact these programs properly if they don't know the exact number of gay people? So I would like to be counted, please. Now, oh, backwards. People are advocating. They're fighting for more control over their lives by D.C. Again, a government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. And how odd, just so recently, the same people would have argued the government's taking everything from them, but now they're so happy and, and desperate to have the government give them everything. Oh, gosh, that you are just setting yourself up. one 888 900 Look how like, every single thing, the th- three segments of this hour, everything totally backwards. 
1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Mike Slater. Thanks for being here. Um, so I guess we do have one more dumb controversy of the, the week to chat about here. We'll take a minute before we go play an interview from Donald Trump back in 1990, which is a lot of interesting things we can uh, we can gather from that. So we'll do that coming up. But um, so Time Magazine, Time Magazine, they're they're one of these groups that's sprinting as quickly as possible to become like BuzzFeed. I don't I don't know the appeal of that, but Time Magazine is just a bunch of hack reporters. Uh, Time Magazine has the reporter, the guy on inauguration day or the day after was like, oh, President Trump got rid of the bust of Martin Luther King Jr. And then a couple hours later, it was like, oh, never mind. Someone was standing in front of it. <laughs> it's like, well, what do what you... What, you didn't look harder? Anyway, so Time Magazine, they're a bunch of hacks. And then you got uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And apparently they have someone running their Twitter account who thinks they're very witty. So this is time. Merriam-Webster defined the word complicit for Ivanka Trump. And the other day, complicit was trending because uh, Ivanka Trump told CBS News, quote, I don't know what it means to be complicit. Now, without any context, which no one provided, you would have, you'd think Ivanka said, oh, com- uh, complicit? I don't know. I've never heard that word before. I don't know what that means. Com- is it, is that, how do you pronounce it? Complicit? I don't, hmm? what do you, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Right? Like that, that's, but that's not, isn't that what that says, right? Like, uh, here, uh, the Merriam Webster defined complicit for Ivanka Trump. That's, I mean, it makes it seem as if she literally has never heard the word before. But that's not what she said. Here's the context. And notice the absurd question. Like, it's not even a, it's not a real question. It's just open-ended nothingness that leads into her using the word complicit. All right, 1441. We hear the phrase complicit, that Jared and Ivanka are complicit in what is happening to the White House. Can you just weigh in on how you feel about that? There have been articles, there have been parodies. What do you think about that, that accusation? If being complicit is wanting to is wanting to be a force for good and to make a positive impact, then I'm complicit. I don't know that the critics who may say that of me, if they found themselves in this very unique and unprecedented situation that I am now in, would do any differently than I'm doing. So I hope to make a positive impact. I don't know what it means to be um, complicit, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but you know, I hope time will prove that I have um, done a good job and much more importantly, that my father's administration is the success that I know it will be. Oh, uh, complicit is an adjective. It means uh, like, like I heard that. So I read the article first and then I heard, no, no, no I take it back. I saw her say that first. Then I read the Time article about it. 
And I was like, wait, I don't. So I went back and I listened to that again. And I was like, does she even say, I don't know what it means to be complicit. I had to watch, I had to listen to it a third time. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess she does. But that's like the throwaway line. When she says, I don't know what it means to be complicit. That's not, that's after she already gave a very nice answer about, about what, about the, the super dumb question. <laughs> right? Are you being complicit? The obvious answer is, what do you mean? What do you mean complicit? Complicit in what? That's that's the obvious answer to that. Are you being complicit? Complicit in what? What are you talking about? And she, because she's sweet, she said, oh, you know, I don't know what it means to be complicit. What are you, as in, what are you talking about? <laughs> Crazy. But again, the media spins it as if she's never heard that word before. Like she's a total idiot. <laughs> Stupid. Um, all right, coming up next. I had an interesting on my local show the other day had an interesting couple minutes because I played this interview from 1990 that we're going to play here in a minute. Then we, I looked up the TV and the president, our president was meeting with the King of Jordan and he called the King of Jordan uh, a great warrior. The King of Jordan is actually known as the warrior King. I said, Oh wow. The timing of that is Perfect. Why, why did he call, why did Trump bring, make the point in this little press conference, though they're doing a joint, you know, little thing. Why did, why did he make the point that here, that he's a warrior king? And what, what does that mean really? I think that says a lot about President Trump, what he values, what he looks at, how he looks at the world. And I want to play this, um, this interview coming up next, we'll bring all this together. There's something really interesting that Trump does if you watch his old interviews. And this is an interview I've never seen before until just the other day. But I've seen old interviews of him on Oprah, and I'm sure you've seen some of these before too. It's very interesting to watch how he acts in these interviews. He's very subtle. He's very calm. He He's down here. It's very, very relaxed, very casual, very just like I don't even really want to be here. That's that kind of, it's very uh, reluctant. Eh, you know, I don't, I don't, I could take it or leave it. It doesn't, huh, where does that come from? And is he still like that today? Do you still see that? I don't know. You know, some people they, today, they think of Trump as you know, a firebrand out there, crazy, blah, blah. You look at the, the Trump from a couple of decades ago and he's super casual. How do you, how do we juxtapose those two things? All right, we're going to bring all that together coming next, and I'll share a story about Christopher Columbus uh, to bring it the historical backing he needs. Christopher Columbus, aha. Well, let me just, I'll throw it to you. When you think Christopher Columbus, what do you think? Uh, Discover the new world, but like the person himself. When you think Christopher Columbus, what do you imagine? What do you envision? Uh, and, And what do you think about his family? Paint a picture in your mind of what you think Christopher Columbus's family was like. How wealthy, privileged, all that stuff. All this will make sense next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three. 
three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Last hour, I want to uh, play this uh, video here, this interview that I, I wish I played a year and a half ago, but I just found it. Um, I don't have a really good reason to play it, but I have no reason to not play it, and I think it's just something we should know. Uh, so this is an interview that Trump did with Connie Chung back in 1990. First, though, I want to play his reaction to this interview. So he did uh, an appearance on the Joan Rivers show. So this is Donald Trump on the Joan Rivers show talking about the interview he recently did with Connie Chung. Here it is, 1439. I guess I've always felt that the press was inherently honest and now i cross the line to say that uh-huh. generally speaking the press is inherently dishonest they're much more interested in the press that you really well, i mean at. you know look you maybe don't put this on because it's cbs but connie chung is a disaster okay. she did an interview oh please please do an interview with me it's going to be so much fun now i had watched her interview marlon brando a couple of weeks before she was a disaster she was like a little child i mean this girl has this woman has less talent than anybody i know of so i watched her interview marlon brando and she was giggling and laughing, and I thought she made a fool out of herself, and a lot of other people did too. And she did too, because she told me before my interview that she was extremely soft and she got very badly, you know, discredited, right. so to speak. So I said, oh, great, because now she's going to show everybody how tough she is. And she came on so strong. And it wasn't that she was strong or that these questions were impossible to answer. Uh, she got high ratings. She got very good good ratings. Some people loved what she did, probably, and many people hated what she did, as I understand it. And then she called up, because she did this just before the whole separation from Ivana. So she called up the next day, and she wanted to know, could she do a second interview because she wanted to cover it? She sent me roses afterwards, and I won't tell you what I did with the roses, but the, <laughs> the, the level, well, I cut them up and sent them back, half back. Oh, I sent her back the stems. Actually, I did. I sent her back the stems, but we kept the, kept the top. But she... You're my kind of guy. There's a level... <laughs> there was a level of unprofessional... It was like a child. It was like you're being interviewed by a child. And I, I said to myself, why is this woman being paid all this money to do this? Because she's really not very good. Called up somebody else. That- Let me stop there. So, return the roses with just the stems. Okay, so there he is talking about the interview. Let's play the actual interview. Uh, it's like 15 minutes, so we just cut up a bunch of different parts of it. Um, so, this is the interview he did with Connie Chung somebody else that you've never even heard of who's got great wealth and said, I want to do an interview. Number one, they'd be afraid to do it. Number two, they wouldn't want to do it. Number three, they wouldn't know how to do it. And number four, they're probably right. They're probably right? They're probably right. What do you mean they shouldn't? Well, I think think there's a nice safety net in not doing it. There's no reason to expose yourself to millions of people. There's no... Do you know why you do it? Why? You love the publicity. Oh, I hate the publicity. Oh, come on, get out of here. I'm telling you, I hate the publicity. Oh, please. I hate it. And except for the fact that it's fun as a sparring session, I mean, this would normally not even be fun. This is, this is fine, and this is fun, and all that stuff, but I don't like it. No, you're on all these covers of Playboy fame. I mean, uh, you you have to understand, it happens to be, it happens to be, or both. It happens to be. Do we have the second part of that? Or both. It oh. happens when they are. I sell very great condominiums in New York. I have the best they casinos in the world. Great. They're the Come best. On. What, They're in Trump Tower? Maybe if you can try and answer this question without giving me the normal spiel. Huh? What is the normal spiel? I don't well, know. Well, the normal spiel is 
Well, the fact is, is that many rich and powerful people um, do try to remain anonymous, but you became very public, very clearly, by your own design. I don't know if it was by my own design. You mean the publicity? I do developments which get a lot of publicity. I mean, if, tr oh, if I didn't on. do Trump, I mean this. If Trump Tower weren't a great building on Fifth Avenue and 57th Street by a Trump young Tower guy... Trump one building in New York City with zillions of buildings. Trump Tower was built by a young because guy you know in a very to... important location. No, I don't, I don't think it was by design, though. I think that Did it happens, so but I don't... Innocent. No, I, I want to be innocent. I've always wanted to be innocent. My this entire life innocent. has been devoted to being innocent. It's a little Donald. <laughs> but I don't know that it was by design. Did I once you... call you and ever say, Connie, we have to do an interview, we have to do this, it's great, it's going to be the but greatest thing? Okay. Donald Trump didn't call us, but he did do this interview just before an avalanche of publicity about his marriage descended on the empire he worked so skillfully to build. Is it true about The invincibility of the Trump name is now... So, a lot going on there. He talks about how he doesn't love the attention. For, so again, I, I mentioned this in the last hour, but isn't it interesting how low-key he is? If you watch old Trump interviews, he's always down here. Right? He's like, Connie, I got, I got the best the best towers. What do you, right? He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't talk fast or loud. Very controlled, very subtle. But about the publicity, um, I think it's easy. I think it's true. And it's easy to conclude that Trump is an egomaniac and someone who needs his ego to be fed. Uh, also, someone who is insecure. And people who are insecure project the opposite of their insecurities, right? So somewhere, for some reason, something from his childhood or wherever, uh, Donald Trump is a, is, has a fear of being poor so, or something like that, right? So he projects wealth with over-the-top gold furniture and decorating and stuff like that. So, okay, let's say those things are true. That's easy. Why has it worked for him? Why has it worked for him? Whether he did it, whether he's done those things or he acts this way on purpose, why does it work? That's what I want to talk about here. So, talked about this on my local show. I got to this point and then I looked up and I saw on the TV, President Trump was introducing uh, the King of Jordan uh, to the White House. And he called the King of Jordan the warrior king. And he praised him for being such a great warrior, such a strong warrior. And I was like, warrior king? I don't know a lot about King Abdullah the second of Jordan. So I was like, why did he call him the warrior king? Phones just blew up. Everyone calling in with all these facts about King Abdullah II of Jordan and how he was a commander of their, their, like their version of the Navy SEALs. And he's this awesome. So some of the stories that people shared were true and some were not true, but still believable right within the realm of possibility. One of them was that when ISIS killed a Jordanian pilot, King Abdullah II himself got in, a, in an F-16 and flew a bombing raid over ISIS. Okay, we had people call and tell me that. And I heard that and I was like, um, that sounds unlikely. But based on the other stories I heard about him, it wasn't totally crazy, right? Like if you told me Nancy Pelosi got in an F-16 and flew a bombing raid, I'd be like, okay, no, like no way. But like, it's like, oh, like maybe, like did he? So I had to do some research and it turns out he didn't. But it was within the realm of possibility, which is crazy. And it reminded me of a scene from Braveheart where William Wallace gets in front of his army and he goes, sons of Scotland. I got bad Scottish. I am William Wallace. And this guy goes, you're not William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. 
He goes, oh, yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundreds and shoots fireballs from his eyes and lightning bolts from his eyes. <laughs> Everyone laughs. Then he goes on. He's like, I am William Wallace. And he starts his whole speech. There was a legend of William Wallace when he was still alive. Like, you're not William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. There's a legend about King Abdullah. Oh, did you hear King Abdullah got in his F-16 and drop bombs on himself? It's hard these days, especially. Easier for William Wallace. <laughs> um, you know, when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, most people in America didn't know what he looked like. Right? So it's, it's easier back then to have legends grow up around you while you're still alive. Much more difficult today. So what does this have to do with Trump? Ooh, it's all the same. I'll, I'll break it down next to the story of Columbus. I promise this next segment will all come together. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network okay bring it together so i was looking through the 48 laws of power to to figure out where this uh what we we're just talking about in the last segment uh, applies um so law 18 is do not build a fortress isolation is dangerous right trump gets out there all the time he's always in the public eye he doesn't uh, he's never been uh isolated you know connie chung did the whole thing like you know most billionaires try to remain private private uh trump has never done that uh, law 24 is play the perfect courtier. There's something there. Um, law 39 is stir up waters to catch fish. He's always doing that. But this is the one I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with law 34. Be royal in your own fashion. I think this explains Trump uh, and, and explains why he's been so successful, like it or not. So Robert Greene tells the story of uh, Christopher Columbus, right? a man who most people know nothing about. So it is. it was believed that Columbus descended from Italian aristocracy, the upper class. And for hundreds of years, people thought this because his son wrote a biography about his dad that said he uh, descended from, from an emperor of Constantinople. Totally not true. Christopher Columbus was the son of a guy who sold cheese. And, and not like, well, Italy's largest cheese manufacturer. No, like a, a cheese vendor, like a guy on the street sold cheese. So Columbus made up this whole story about his nobility. Made it up. Now, because he made it up, or one reason why he made it up, uh, was he was able to marry into a family that had connections to Portuguese royalty. So he was able to get a meeting with the king of Portugal, and that's where he made his pitch to look for a westward voyage to Asia. Now, he had two stipulations. He said, if I discover any new land on the way, I must be the governor of that land, and I want 10% of all the profit of any commerce done on this land that I discover for all time. Everyone, all my descendants will get 10% of the profit for all time of this land. Now, 
here's the thing with those two bold offers. Columbus was a nobody. He Not only was he just a merchant, he knew nothing about navigation. This is the craziest thing. Like if, if you're just hearing this for the first time, you're like, well, hold on, wait. We have a holiday, Columbus Day. We learned about Christopher Columbus growing up. Like, what are you talking about? He didn't know how to, now he couldn't use a quadrant. A quadrant was what the sailors used back then to read the stars. He didn't know how to use it. He couldn't navigate. He's never led a group of men. He had no details whatsoever on how he was going to find a passage to, to Asia. But he just went to the king and made these big, bold, yet vague promises. The king of Portugal said no. But Columbus learned a lesson. He thought he was going to go in there. And the king was going to laugh at his proposal. He thought the king was going to laugh. And, and he thought the king was going to question his credentials and question his background. But he didn't. The king didn't question any of that. The king was like, hmm, okay, uh, no thank you. Right? <laughs> and Christopher Columbus was like, well, what? Why did the king not question? Because Columbus was so confident. And the king assumed that if someone was going to demand such a high price, he had to be worth it. It's the, it's the equivalent of uh, walk around like you know what you're doing, right? If you're at like a concert or something and you want to get behind the scenes or you're at some event, walk walk with confidence. Like you're like, oh, obviously I'm supposed to be behind the scenes here. Like I, was, I, I work here, like I, right? Walk with confidence and no one will question you. That's what Columbus did, but talking to the king. So long story short, he eventually met with the queen of Spain who indeed gave him three ships named... Three ships named Nina Pinta Santa Maria and gave him in the, the contract the title of governor of whatever land he discovers. But little side note, in the fine print, the queen took out the part where he gets 10% of whatever uh, commerce is done in the new land and Columbus never read the fine print, signed the contract anyway, and obviously would have had more money than anyone ever uh, if that was in there. Anyway. So this is Robert Greene. He says, as an explorer, Columbus was mediocre at best. He knew less about the sea than did the average sailor on ships. Could never determine the latitude or longitude of his discoveries. Mistook islands for vast continents and treated his crew badly. But in one area, he was a genius. He knew how to sell himself. How else to explain how the son of a cheese vendor managed to ingratiate himself with the highest royal and aristocratic families? Columbus had an amazing power to charm the nobility. I think Trump has an amazing power to charm the the lower and middle class. The opposite, but same idea. It's about the charm, charisma. He projected a sense of confidence that was completely out of proportion to his means. He said "Not this was not the, the confidence, the, the, uh, the, the aggressive, ugly self-promotion of an upstart. It was a quiet and calm self-assurance. So I think, I'll bring this up because I think that's, Trump it's a weird mixture of both of them right right so his wealth and his success flaunted right gold everything giant jet it's not just a uh, you know a jet it's a 747 or whatever it is right 
and he'll point it out all the time. But there's still a like a in a weird way, it's 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 like a there's like a quiet confidence about it. It's like it's not that big of a deal to him. And that's why in that Connie Chung interview, he was like, Oh yeah, you know, publicity is not really my thing. <laughs> what? Of course it's your thing. Nah, I don't, I don't like doing this. You didn't call me. Did, I, I didn't call you. You called me. I don't. It's really, really interesting. Last quote here from uh, Robert Greene. He says, uh, the crown, place it upon your head and you assume a different posture, tranquil yet radiating assurance. Never show doubt. Never lose your dignity beneath the crown or it will not fit. It will seem to be destined for someone more worthy. Do not wait for a coronation. The greatest emperors crown themselves. And if you look back at Trump during the campaign, I think there was a tranquil yet radiated assurance. And I think that made people say, well, yeah, of course he'll be in the next. Like, not, not the media hated him, right? But I think most people are like, oh, yeah, like he's presidential. He should be the next president. And I think that's why he is. And I think he's going to continue to project that same. It's, it's so odd because I know there's people listening who are like, Senator, what are you talking about? He's the most loudmouthed, obnoxious, in your face, arrogant, egotistical. Yeah, weird. Like sometimes, but sometimes he's the opposite. Go back, doesn't go back and watch old interviews. And actually, any even current interviews, when he does a one on one interview with anyone today, it's, I, which I don't, has, has he done one since he's been president? I don't think so. Maybe when he was just inaugurated. Uh, but it's still very calm. It's very calm, very like, oh, you know, here we are. So he projects both. That's interesting. Now, this begs the question why, why do we like, why do we like the confidence? Why do we like that? Where does that come from? I want to share a story coming up next of uh, a guy who spent two years, I think it was two years, in a remote tribe in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. Now, this is a tribe, like, I mean, tribe. Like, when you when I say tr- tribe, just whatever you imagine, like, they, like, no clothes tribe kind of thing, right? No contact with the outside world. They hunt for monkeys to eat and build their houses from things they can find in the jungle, right? Like, that kind of tribe. Two years in this tribe. And he writes this, this uh, researcher writes about this guy in the tribe who, and I'll just kind of give away half the punchline here, who's a lot like Donald Trump. And the way the people in the tribe react about him, it's not too different from how people in America react to him either. We'll share that story coming up next. Slater Radio on Twitter, one 888 Uh a lot of this stuff's just human nature. And and personally, I think Trump knows it. If he doesn't know the academic aspect behind it, he's lived it for 40 years. He knows what works and what doesn't. I got him to the presidency. I think it'll get him through the presidency as well. All right, we'll chat about this tribe in Papua New Guinea next. Mike Sider, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike's 
Slater. All right, one more story here. Uh, so a guy lived with a remote tribe in the mountains of Papua New Guinea for two years, like straight up tribe with spears, naked, right? The whole thing, right? So there's this one guy in the tribe. His name was Kinemnok. We're going to call him Jim just for the sake of conversation. So uh, this is the, uh, the researcher. Quote, he frequently boasted, was loud, very prone to angry outbursts. Most Europe men, that's the, uh, the tribe. So most of the tribe tend to keep their successes to themselves. They're quiet and never openly express anger for fear that it might make others sick. But Jim's manner was quite untribes-like, tribesmen-like. So pretty much everyone uh, grows food in their garden in this tribe. And there's like some of the men hunt, but they're not very successful. And if you catch something, it's a really big deal. Quote, given the possibility that hunting can greatly enhance a man's reputation, right? Because if you hunt, you're the man, right? The temptation for men to favor hunting over gardening is high. And the tribe's folk tales depict the bad ends that come to men who do. In these tortoise and hare type stories, the cautious gardener always comes out ahead of the flashy hunter. Just in case the message of that tale is not clear, the tribesmen also believe that men who have a run of luck in hunting have unknowingly married the female spirit who looks after the marsupials, right? Because they hunt, kill monkeys. She first makes her new husband successful in the hunt, but soon after she will become jealous of his human wife and will eventually try to kill the husband. The first time a successful hunter, or excuse me, the first time a recently successful hunter comes home, close to having an accident while hunting, he assumes that the marsupial spirit is ready to be done with him and stops hunting for a while, right? So people in this tribe, their nature is to be like, oh, like the hunter, that's awesome. You're the man, how cool. Right? But the culture came up with these stories. It says, no, don't, you don't want to be the hunter. Do the gardening. You're going to come out ahead. Like just like our tortoise in the hair, right? Slow and steady wins the race. Be the gardener. Also, if you're still tempted to be a hunter, if you're good at it, then you're going to unknowingly marry the female spirit of the marsupials and that spirit's going to kill you. So get back to the garden, right? That's culture that has created these, these stories. So back to Jim, Jim, heck with that. He hunted all the time. Didn't even have a garden. Didn't even have a garden. So he goes out and he hunts. And when he wouldn't uh, find any uh, monkeys, he would, he would clutch his chest and he would say that the marsupial spirit was trying to kill him. And he'd do this whole act. Uh, but he never stopped hunting. Super weird guys, what we're getting at, right? Strange character in the tribe. So this researcher, American researcher, goes up uh, to this tribe, spends some time, quickly finds out that Jim is super obnoxious and then realizes that everyone else thought he was obnoxious as well. Then came a day when the tribe thought that a neighboring tribe might come and take him over. And if this neighboring tribe was going to come and attack, they were sure that they would see Jim as a threat and kill him. So this tribe was very sad, very concerned that this might happen. Right? So they're like, no, we, we, we don't want this tribe to attack us because they're going to kill Jim. 
So the researcher's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. You guys hate Jim. Jim's obnoxious. Jim's a nut. Jim doesn't follow the cultural norms of the tribe. Jim goes hunting when you value gardening. Why do you like Jim? Why are you worried about Jim? Shouldn't you be throwing Jim to the wolves? Like, what do you want Jim for? He said, quote, the outpouring of sorrow over Jim's possible removal from the community stunned me. I had to reevaluate my understanding of what he meant to people. So then he started going around. So at first he was like, hey, what do you think of Jim? Pretty crazy, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, crazy Jim. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. So then he starts going around asking people who their favorite person in the tribe was. And they all say Jim. He's like, well, hold on. You just told me a little bit ago that you think Jim's crazy. Also their favorite. In the years since I left the tribe, I've spent time trying to figure out why Jim was so popular among his people. And recently, I think I have found the answer. All right, here we are. Got the background? Let's roll. The tribe liked Jim because they thought he was a willful man. What does that mean? Quote, he did what he wanted without regard for others. People in the tribe think it is sometimes important for people to be willful. This is so, they say, because people sometimes have to push others a bit hard to make new things, such as marriages and hunting parties and gardening groups come to life. But the tribesmen also tend to think that a little willfulness goes a long way. They also value an opposite quality they call lawfulness, a willingness to preserve things the way they are rather than to create something new. Most of the tribe spends their lives trying to find balance between willfulness and lawfulness moving back and forth between their two values. Most people never realize either one completely. Quick time out. So you get those two things. So it's like, and we get this too in our society, right? You need a little push and pull, right? You need a little bit of, let's go out there. Let's try something new. Let's be a little crazy. But then you also need the back to basics. There's a book called, uh, what's the book called? The Millionaire's Club, maybe? I'll look it up here. And uh, in the book, it's a novel. There's a, uh, political consultant, campaign consultant. And the campaign consultant says there's two types of political campaigns. Bright new day, back to basics. That's it. So your campaign messaging is either it's a bright new day or let's get back to basics. And it, it always cycles back and forth. And it's all about uh, timing your campaign up with the mood of the country. What was Trump's? Back to basics. Make America great again. What was Barack Obama's? Hope and change. New, bright new day. Obama, or excuse me, that was Obama's. Trump's, make America great again, right? Right, Harkens back, so back to basic. So same back and forth this tribe, right? Got to try new things. We need a little uh, little pep in our step, need a little fire, right? We got to get out there. But, ooh, let's not go too far, right? Let's bring it back. Bring it back to basics here. Let's remember who we are, that whole kind of thing, right? So when you have this back and forth conflict, you can never really be one completely because you're always going back and forth. He says, uh, the researcher says, I think Jim captivated the other tribes people because he showed them what willfulness is in its fullest form. Most of them never follow him in realizing willfulness so absolutely. But in Jim, they saw what willfulness looked like when it was given free expression. I think that's Trump. I think people admire Trump and have for decades, right? This is not a new phenomenon. Like Trump didn't come out of nowhere. Politics like really distorted everyone's impression on him. Like my mom, so my mom loved Barack Obama, loves Hillary. 
Uh, she loved Trump when he was Trump in New York City. Uh, now hates him with a passion, right? Because of politics. But, but everyone like loved the previous Trump, right? Admired by everyone. The, the, the TV show and all the rest, right? Why? Because he was like Jim. Over the top. Bold. Took risks. Did what no one else would do. How about this example? Put his name on the front of every building. Right? Trump this, Trump that, Trump stakes, Trump tower. No one would do that. Because we don't do that because we got to find a balance in our lives, right? So it's, it's I'm going to be bold and I'm going to build this giant new building. But I'm not going to call it, you know, Mike Slater Tower. That's a little too over the top, right? So we're going to call it, uh, you know, uh, 44 Tower. The ta- it's on 44th Street. We'll call it 44th Street Tower or something, right? And Trump's like, I'm going to build a giant tower. I'm going to call it Trump Tower. And I'm going to do a hundred different buildings and they're all going to be called Trump something, Trump international, Trump hotel, Trump tower, Trump DC. It's like, whoa. So we look at that. And part of us is like, Hey man, why you got to be so bold? Why you got to, why you got to be arrogant like that? But secretly we're like, Oh man, I wish I was more like that. Right? So the people in the tribe, they look at Jim and they're like, man, what a crazy nut. But deep down they're like, Oh, I wish I was more like Jim. We admire Jim. We admire people who go full all in. And we look at them and we say, oh, that's what it would look like if we went all in. Okay, I'm not going to do that, but good for him. We'll wrap up here. The researcher says, even as people tend to find characters like Jim fascinating, most people don't want to live like them. They're not role models. I don't want to live like Trump. Do you want to live like Trump? First of all, have you have you you've seen his penthouse apartment in New York City? Pictures of it. Like, who would ever decorate like that? Like, <laughs> I don't get that at all. The gold, everything in the marble columns. Like, I wouldn't. If I had a billion dollars, I wouldn't make my apartment look like that. But you still admire it. Would you act like Trump? No. But there's like certain things, not everything, but there's certain things you're like, oh, that's that's bold. It has some appeal to it. I know I promise I'll wrap here. This is a comment um, to the article that this researcher wrote. This person said, it's so simple to me. We admire the iconoclast. So an iconoclast is someone who breaks the traditional norms, right? We admire the iconoclast for their daring. We struggle with our own insecurities and wonder how someone can have that, that seeming confidence. We want to be the person who speaks their mind without regard for social standards. But most people don't have the stomach for the negative social consequences. We don't want to be them, just a, just a bit more like them. Interesting background to look at Trump. That's what's interesting because I mean, we're talking about a tribe in Papua New Guinea, but don't you see similar variables here between you and uh, our very own Jim? Trump, Don, 1-888-900-3393, Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Cassettes, I think we can wrap up here. This is good because it brings it back. We kicked out the show talking about Syria and and how 
you may not trust Donald Trump with foreign affairs or whatever, but don't worry too much about it. Yes, he's the one who's ultimately going to make final decisions, but he has McMaster and Mad Dog uh, who are as brilliant and profound and, and have as much depth and perspective as any two men in, in these fields could possibly have. Right? They're, they're scholar warriors to the highest degree who are, uh, who are around him, and I trust them. And Trump's a good delegator-in-chief, and, and I think these two guys are, uh, are people that are worthy of uh, some trust. So that being said, a couple weeks ago, do you remember President Trump was in Michigan? And he told a story about how um, he invited some auto, the audio executive guys to the Oval Office, and they all said, oh, we've never been here before. And President Trump's like, what do you mean you've never been to the, you've never been to the White House? What are you talking about? And they're like, oh, yeah, Obama never invited us. To the, I've never seen the White House. He's like, what? So, so his point was right. We had the, one of the biggest industries in the, in the country and no engagement whatsoever, like listening, no listening to what they might need or want. Or whatever. So I think that gives some insight into Trump is how he's running his White House right, with auto companies, but also with foreign affairs. I don't know if I shared this story here, but it's worth doing again if I have. Uh, the Afghan ambassador, his name is Dr. Mohib, he hosted a dinner at his at his house of uh, gold star wives. Right? These are wives of Americans whose husbands uh, died in Afghanistan. And this is what he said. He said, I've personally met with President Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And the president's had two phone conversations with uh, the president of Afghanistan. Before the calls, we were advised to keep conversations short because we were told Trump was not interested in the details of the call and he doesn't have a long attention span. So it'd be pointless to have a long call. But we were pleasantly surprised at how much time President Trump spent asking very informed questions. The first time the president spoke, the the questions Trump asked impressed us. How can you win in this fight against terrorism? What do you need to become financially independent? How many American businesses invest in Afghanistan? How can we develop business and mining in your country? Trump would listen intently after each question, often asking follow-ups. Trump's second call with our president was even longer than the first. Asking these types of questions for our country is something the Obama administration never did. The Obama administration was the most academic administration we've ever had to deal with, but the Trump administration has been the most thoughtful and intelligent. Trump continually asked, how can you win? What does Afghanistan need to win in reference to our fight with terrorism? Trump wants to win. Sincerely, all the Obama administration wanted to do was not lose. The Obama administration was hesitant with us. The enemy could see that. When the Obama administration announced its plans to pull troops out of the region, they announced the exact date they would do it. So all our enemies had to do was wait Obama out. They knew the date they had to hang on to, which gave them the will to fight. They used that time to recruit and build up resources. To bring real reform, we must be able to defeat enemies outside our country and inside. We must overthrow the warlords. Bah, 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 bah. Every time we tried to remove one of them from power, Secretary of State, would, uh, John Kerry, would say no. The entire Obama administration was too cautious. But Kerry was the most cautious. Trump was very different from Obama in this way, and this is good for the future of Afghanistan. Wow, so that's the Afghan ambassador to America. So much there, right? Saying Obama administration was academic, but Trump just wants to win. And again, oh, we were told to keep it short because, uh, you know, basically President Trump's stupid. 
doesn't have a long attention span and just totally blew that perception out of the water. I think that, I don't know. I think that's a little comforting. Don't let your guard down, certainly. But that's got to be a little comforting, right? Um, and then you got Mad Dog and you got McMaster and uh, they want to win and they're asking them questions on how to do it. That's a good thing, right? Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. We'll see you next week. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and business.